It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 337 for the 7th of April, 2013. This week, it isn't just email and websites. Fraud is heading your way from every possible location. If you have older programs that won't work on Windows 7 or Windows 8, there might be a way, but sometimes you just need to know when it's time to give up. In short circuits, Apple apologizes to Chinese consumers, but retains the same policies in the U.S. Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop users will want to download some updates. TechBite Twitters and Santa Clara leads the way in ubiquitous Wi-Fi through the power grid. This is one of those programs with a lot of examples that are images, so listening to the podcast while checking out the website might be a good idea, or just stop by the website sometime when you have a few minutes to check out the examples. As always, www.techbiter.com. The Licking County Computer Society recently asked me to visit the organization and talk about the most common Internet fraudsters. The danger is real, and it's becoming worse. The easiest way to avoid trouble is simply to assume that anything you see on the Internet is fraudulent until you can prove it to be legitimate. The threats are everywhere. We see more of them every day. They come by email, we encounter fraudulent websites, the various social media are rife with frauds, they arrive by phone, and some even come by mail. Now we're cautious in dealing with the people we meet on the street, so why be any less cautious with email, or the web, or social media? Here are some words to live by. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You've heard that, it's an old saw, but it's accurate. Bill Gates isn't going to send you $1,000 for forwarding an email. You didn't win millions in a lottery that you didn't enter. Somebody didn't die in one of Africa's poorest countries and leave you a fortune. Honda does not give cars away. Neither does Toyota or GM. BlackBerry will not be sending you a free phone. Old-time journalists have a really simple rule. No matter what anybody tells you, or who that person is, make sure you validate it. Some journalists state it this way. Your mother says she loves you? Great. Fine. But check it out. On the internet, one rule will serve you well. Trust nothing. You may be surprised that most malicious websites are actually hosted in the United States, even though many of the malware operators are in the old Soviet bloc. Russia and China are close behind when it comes to hosting, but still, the most common hosting country for fraudulent websites is the United States. Now, Russia wins when it comes to infected computers, but unfortunately, the U.S. isn't far behind, and this is not a race we want to win. After that, the closest competitor is Germany. Poland's infection rate is less than half that of the U.S., Canada's infection rate a sixth of the United States rate. Are Canadians really that much smarter than we are? There are lots of virus families, and the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows you the top 
10. The viruses are given funny names, but you know, those names are a lot less amusing when your computer is infected. Botnets consist of armies of infected computers that are controlled remotely. There are 10 botnets that account for 64 million infected computers. The computers are recruited into botnets via infected email messages or email messages that use social engineering to convince the recipient to visit a website that will install malware. And if you have a Mac, just wipe that smug grin off your face. Macs are vulnerable. Now, they're not as vulnerable as Windows computers, but Macs can be infected. And with Macs gaining market share, this is only going to get worse. Email, though, is probably the largest gaping security hole. The single most common vector for malware continues to be email, in part because it's so common and because it seems so innocuous. I show you on the TechBiter Worldwide website a message that purports to be from payroll processor ADP. My computer's antivirus program caught it, and I don't have anybody on an ADP payroll. You might also note, if you look at the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, that the copyright date is 2007. Now, ADP is a big company, and I think they keep their copyright information up to date. But what if my antivirus application hadn't caught it? And what if I worked for a company that uses ADP for payroll? Next, you'll see a phishing message that claims to be from the Internal Revenue Service. It'd take a real knucklehead to fall for this one. It seems that my appeal has been rejected. I didn't file an appeal. There was no attachment, although the message indicated that one was there. So the goal, actually, is to get me to call. And they want me to believe that the IRS uses an area code 900 number. 900 numbers are ones that you pay for when you call, and you can pay a lot. This one is $3.59 a minute. And they're open for business only Friday through Wednesday from 3 a.m. to 8.59 a.m. your local time. Really? What happened to Thursday? The IRS isn't open on Thursday? They're not open during the day? Come on. You'll receive messages that claim to be from UPS and say your package is being held at a post office. Wait a minute. UPS and the post office. Two different operations. Or maybe you're told that important scanned documents await your review. Or your airline tickets are ready. Or maybe you're advised that there's an automated clearinghouse problem with your bank's wire transfer. An unexpected charge on your credit card. Or that somebody has filed a complaint against you with the Better Business Bureau. Those are just some of the many that you might see. So you click the link and you're asked to wait for the page to load. And you do, and you wait, and you wait. And while you're waiting, that rogue website that you're waiting for is attempting to download and install malware on your computer. Now, these days, it seems that even my wife spams me, except that she doesn't. She typically doesn't send me one-word messages with a link. Her name is on the message in the From section, but the message actually came from a hijacked account at Consultant.com. And the site that the link refers to would attempt, of course, to install malware. Among the more common threats, how many times each week do you receive messages that say you have to validate something? Your username or your password or your account number. If your anti-spam software is sufficiently vigilant, maybe you don't see a lot of these. But I check the trash bin occasionally to see what's there, and there are a lot of them. 
The one basic rule is this. You should never be asked to give someone information that they should already have. Your email address, for example. And no legitimate service will ever ask you to validate your password. If the message is legitimate, it will address you by name and not by your email address or with the term Dear Email User. And even then, it's reckless to click any link in the message. Recently, I received a really laughable example of a phishing scam that claimed to be about my Intuit payroll, which of course I don't have. It would take a real fool to fall for this one because, first of all, I don't have any payroll files, much less any that are managed by Intuit. Maybe you do have payroll files, and maybe they are managed by Intuit. So take a look at the rest of the message. It came not from Intuit, but from filestube.com. Yeah, I'm sure that Intuit uses filestube.com to send its email messages. The subject was a rather ungrammatical payroll account holded by Intuit. And within the message, I'm told that my finances will be gone away and that the amount to be seceded is 4231 USD. Additionally, paychecks would be procrastinated. So obviously this has been written by someone with a barely tenuous grip on the English language. And of course all the URLs provided in the message go to the same poisoned link. Pump and dump stock schemes are still big money makers. Somebody buys a bunch of penny stock shares and then sends spams that encourage people to buy. The stock price rises and the fraudsters sell. Those who followed the advice and bought the stock now have worthless shares while the fraudsters have your money. So this is not what I would consider to be a good deal. And if you look at the small type on the message from the email fraudster, who's being very careful not to actually be a fraudster because they're warning you, you could lose your entire investment. Actually, you will lose your entire investment. PayPal frauds have been around for years, but people still fall for them. PayPal messages will always come from PayPal and not from someplace like lakelandplumbers.com. They will always be sent to the address that you use with PayPal. I have never received a fraudulent PayPal message to the actual address I use with PayPal. And PayPal messages will always address you by name, not just hello or Dear PayPal user or Dear followed by your email address. And if you hover your mouse cursor over a real PayPal message, you'll find the link will be PayPal and not someplace in Russia. Here's something that might get your interest. How many girls in Russia want to be your friend? Lots, apparently, or at least that's the case with me. Lyra wants me to show me her photos. Wow, am I excited or what? Well, or what? The message says it's from Lyra, but the from name is Daryl Jorgensen, and his real address is Boyd at Kitron.com. So Lyra, or Daryl, or Boyd, wants me to visit her or his website, which is www.rugirlsx.ru. Russian girls. <laughs> Clever. Uh, but I could see an infection in my computer's future if I do that. So I just deleted the message. But it's not just email messages that bring fraudsters to your doorstep, or mine. You may receive phone calls from Microsoft. The caller, usually with a strong Southeast Asian accent, will tell you that your computer is infected, and that to solve the problem you must follow a link they provide. Usually it's a link that will allow them to take control of your computer. The truth is that Microsoft would have no way to know if your computer is infected. 
And besides, Microsoft never places calls such as this. The alternative fraudster method is a call that claims to be from your internet service provider. Now, on rare occasions, ISPs do make such phone calls. So if you receive one, ask for the caller's name and then call back. But don't use any number the person provides. Instead, go to your ISP's website, find the number there, and call in. You've probably received messages that say that they're from someone who was robbed in some foreign city. Have you received any of those? They usually ask for a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. They just want to take care of hotel expenses and get to the airport so they can get home. And then you'll get your money back as soon as the poor traveler gets home, of course. Well, there are lots of danger signs. Maybe you receive a message from Alexandria, Egypt, and it's from a person who wouldn't normally have the means to finance a 60-mile trip from Columbus to Zanesville. A phony message won't call you by name. Many of these will be from someone who is at best a casual acquaintance, not somebody who's likely to request a loan of hundreds or thousands of dollars from you. And you may spot other clues. The writer doesn't speak English very well, and the written words actually sound nothing like anything your friend would write. Or maybe you've received an official-looking email from someone who says that it's time to renew your domain's hosting, or advertising, or registration, or search engine optimization. The vast majority of these are frauds, and they're easy because so few people understand how these things work. Domain information is public, so anyone can send an automated message that addresses you by name and mentions your specific domain. I did receive one for a domain that I administer, but there's an important, very small, very light type comment on this message. It says it's not an invoice. It whispers that. Instead, it's just a courtesy. In fact, this probably isn't illegal. It probably isn't even a fraud. The company will provide a service, probably submitting your domain name to a bunch of useless search engines. So is it legal? Yes. Is it unethical? Also yes. Facebook is a hotbed of fraud, too. I received a message that claimed to be from Facebook, reminding me of messages that I might have missed. Now, the problems with the message included these. First, it was sent from Hotmail. Second, it was sent to an address that I don't use for Facebook. Third, it references somebody I don't know. And fourth, the link goes to Russia. But except for those four minor clues, it appears to be entirely legitimate. And people I know send fraudulent links to me, or so it seems. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website that comes from a sender I know, but it comes not from her email address. The subject line is my name, hardly something she'd do. The named person is an editor and would not write as badly as the message is written, and she would also not write in all caps. Really, these frauds aren't all that hard to spot. Even the U.S. Postal Service delivers frauds. I received a letter that offered me a free Android tablet. All I had to do was fill out a survey form, and the tablet is mine to keep. Uh, I get to keep it even if I don't bother to fill out the survey. Ding, ding, ding. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. As it turns out, the message was from somebody who wanted to sell me an interest in a timeshare property. And it's a company that has a long and storied history of complaints with the Better Business Bureau and other anti-fraud agencies. 
It doesn't matter how you're contacted. Email, phone, mail, in person. Lots of people simply want to separate you from your money, lose you, and keep the money. Before you respond to anything, keep the old journalist's rule in mind and trust nothing. I received a request this week from Mickey, who described a problem trying to run an old program on a new Windows 7 computer. I quote, I have an old CD called Printmaster Gold version 3. Remember, I did say old. Well, it ran fine up through Windows XP Pro, which is the last version I used it on until the new computer came along. I tried going to Microsoft and downloading something that might have made Windows 7 compatible with Windows XP, but that didn't work. I really have gotten so used to this CD with the options it offers, I really hate to change. Is there anything in your bag that might get this CD to work on Windows 7? Well, this isn't an uncommon problem. Old. Yes, I think that does apply, considering that Amazon is selling Printmaster Gold version 18 and calling it an old version for $9 instead of the $20 list price. So version 3 has been around for a few years. Chances are this one's probably not going to work. But here's some background information. Broderbund has been around since 1980. It was purchased by the Learning Company in 1998. Some of the company's software titles, Printmaster, for example, and Mavis Beacon, are still published under the name Broderbund. In researching this, I found several references to Printmaster version 4 and the problems that people were having when they tried to run it under Vista. So it doesn't seem to be very promising. Windows 7 and Vista do have some options for running older software. The functionality is built in and doesn't require buying anything or downloading anything, but it's also very far from a sure bet. Microsoft provides some instructions and a short video on how to proceed. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Microsoft page also includes this statement. If changing the settings doesn't fix the problem, go to the program manufacturer's website to see if there's an update for the program. And for Printmaster Gold version 3, there are lots of updates for that program. It's possible that this old program simply will not work with a modern operating system. I was able to run WordPerfect 5.1 for DOS for a lot of years after some computer pundits deemed it impossible. But I was never able to get it to work with Windows 7. Now, in truth, I never really did try very hard. It's possible that I might have found a way, but WordPerfect 5.1 didn't have printer drivers for any printers more recent than those manufactured in the 1980s. So even if you're able to install the old Printmaster program, it might not be able to print. So if you're in this situation, I would encourage you to take a look at the Microsoft video that explains how to use the Windows 7 troubleshooter, And if that fails, the only workable solution might be to acquire a later version of the application. In short circuits, Apple has apologized to Chinese consumers. How about those of us in the U.S.? In defiance of Chinese law, Apple offers a one-year warranty on its devices. China says warranties must cover a minimum of two years. Consumers in China were also annoyed by being forced to pay $90 to replace a faulty back cover on their iPhones. 
The fuss began in mid-March on what's called International Consumers Day. It ended this past Monday when Apple CEO Tim Cook apologized and promised that Apple would do better in China. On March 15th, the state-run China Central Television Network carried a report that detailed how companies mistreat those who buy their products. It's an annual event on Chinese TV, but this time Apple was among the targets. Cook admitted that Apple had been arrogant in dealing with customers, something that's difficult to imagine Steve Jobs ever doing. Xinhua, China's official news agency, said the company's response should have come earlier, but suggested it wasn't too late for Apple to repair relationships with its customers. China is important to Apple's plans as a growing Chinese middle class purchases Apple's computers and phones. There have even been persistent rumors that Apple is trying to develop lower-cost devices that could be sold in developing countries. So, if Apple must offer two-year warranties in China, how about offering two-year warranties in the United States and elsewhere in the world? In China, as most other places, events don't occur without a reason. So why did the government-run media attack Apple right now? Writing in the San Jose Mercury News, John Bordeaux offered some suggestions, and I quote, A range of theories have been offered to explain why Apple came under such sharp attack in China. Some analysts say it was a reaction to the company's decision not to allow the government to have strong oversight of its online iTunes and app stores. Others cite government concern about the dominance of Apple's and Google's operating systems in the country, and still others say it was a form of payback for the way Chinese telecom giant Huawei has struggled to get business in the United States amid congressional suspicions of possible close links to the Chinese military. Adobe has released Lightroom 4.4, which is free to any Lightroom 4 user, and the concurrent release of Camera Raw 7.4 for Photoshop users. The updates provide bug fixes for problems that have been reported in previous releases. Among the more critical corrections reported by Adobe is an improved demosaic process for Fujifilm cameras with X-Trans sensors, specifically the Fujifilm X-Pro1 and the X-E1. In addition, these releases also add raw file support for 25 cameras, three from Canon, three from Casio, five from Fuji, three from Hasselblad, one from Leica, five from Nikon, one from Olympus, one from Samsung, and two from Sony. You'll find the full list on the TechBiter Worldwide website, particularly if you have one of those cameras. You'll want to download this update. Adobe encourages feedback from users of its applications. With hundreds of models of digital cameras, it's impossible to test every possible combination of operating conditions. So, Adobe relies on users to report what software engineers call edge conditions that are related to the diverse hardware and software configurations in use. The company maintains a special feedback site, feedback.photoshop.com. Lightroom and Camera Raw releases are always coordinated because Camera Raw technology that's introduced into Photoshop as a plug-in is actually part of the core functionality built in to Lightroom. 
Well, it seems that TechBiter is twittering. Maybe this social media thing isn't a passing fad. And no, I didn't actually ever think that, but you would be forgiven for believing that I did. In addition to the podcast and website, TechBite is becoming active on Facebook and Twitter. In fact, there's been a TechBiter account on Twitter for several years, and I've had a personal Facebook account for a long time. There is now an official TechBiter Facebook page, and the Twitter account has been resurrected. I'm still working on exactly how these are going to be used, but the plan is to replace the moribund TechBiter Today WordPress presence. I had expected to use TechBiter Today for what I called at the time updates between the weekly updates, but that never really quite worked out the way I thought it would. Because WordPress allows long-form articles, I tended to write long-form articles, even though my intent was to use it to let readers and listeners know when something important happened, like new zero-day threats, for example, or to preview what I was working on for an upcoming program. The combination of Twitter with its extremely short-form comments and Facebook, where brevity is encouraged but images are permitted, seems to be one that will play together well with the existing website and podcast, both of which are going to continue unchanged. Well, one change, a small one. Each page of the site now has Twitter and Facebook links, so you can find TechBiter on those services. How about a little Wi-Fi from your electric utility? An article in the San Jose Mercury News caught my eye this week. Silicon Valley Power is installing new smart meters in homes and businesses, and with them, free Wi-Fi. The day of ubiquitous Wi-Fi may finally be approaching. Eric Curry's article notes that reception is best outside and near one of the power utilities' transmitters. There are 600 of them in Santa Clara, which is a small town west of the San Jose airport and east of Sunnyvale. That's okay, though, because outside is exactly where free Wi-Fi is needed. If you have internet service at home, and who doesn't these days, you probably already have Wi-Fi throughout your house. It's when you go outside that you have a problem. The article quotes the power company's Larry Owens, who says that Silicon Valley Power is the first utility in the nation to offer free Wi-Fi as part of the smart meter rollout. The power company is owned by the city. Owens says the Wi-Fi service has been in operation for less than a week, and already they're seeing 3,000 users a day. The city bought a private Wi-Fi operation that was in financial trouble nearly a decade ago and planned to use the hardware to serve both its own operations and the public. There are some cautions and warnings, of course. The free system is open, meaning that it should not be used for anything that should be secure. Banking, for example. And it won't be anywhere near as fast as the Wi-Fi you probably have installed inside your home. But it's handy, and it's outside... And it's essentially ubiquitous. Read the full article if you want on the Mercury News website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com. 
I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.